Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Welcome to the Curve Beam Podcast. I'm your host, Vinti Singh, the Director of Marketing at Curve Beam. Thanks for joining us this episode as we continue to explore how our solutions are changing medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Babak Baravarian, DPM FACFAS. After residency at University of Pittsburgh, he joined UCLA and was there for four years before opening the University Foot and Ankle Institute, where he now serves as the general director and also director of the fellowship program. He previously served as the chief of podiatric surgery at UCLA Santa Monica and is still an assistant professor at the UCLA School of Medicine. He is also editor emeritus of the medical journal Foot and Ankle Specialist. Dr. Baravarian, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Vinti. It's a pleasure. So can you tell us um, when was University Foot and Ankle founded? Um, so we started in 2003. Um, which is kind of strange to think it's been that long, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, almost two decades. Um, can you tell us how the practice has evolved since it first opened? Uh, yeah, so myself and my partner Gary Briskin were both at uh, UCLA, and uh, you know, had, uh, Gary had been in practice in the LA area for a long time. Uh, and when when we saw that at UCLA, our hands were a bit tied with what we could do, um, what we could use, how we treated patients, we felt like um, it wasn't as open as we wanted for us to be able to grow, both technically and in size. Um, so we opened uh, University Foot and Ankle in 2003. Uh, over the course of the you know past 15 years or so, um, we've kind of grown geographically into multiple locations. We have 10 locations now with um, I think nine doctors. Um, we have our own physical therapy. Uh, we have our own surgery center. Uh, we have our own MRIs. We have a CT scanner, as you know. Uh, and, you know, our, our goal is just to be able to provide completely um, uh, incorporated care for the patient. So when the patient comes in, we take care of them from start to finish. There's no need for them to go to an outside facility where we don't have control of how the quality of the care is and how it's handled. So is that how your practice grew, where you would see the patient and you realized that there was a part of that episode of care which was being outsourced and not always able to be quality controlled, and so you figured out ways to bring those different components in-house? Uh, you know, from, from day one, uh, when Gary and I were setting up the practice, our goal was to set it up in a way where um, we took care of uh, the patient from start to finish. The interesting thing is in 2003, we were paperless. We opened the office paperless. And even with x-rays, uh, we had a digital machine uh, when we were the first one to buy a digital machine from the company that had just started podiatric uh, digital x-rays. Uh, and that was like maybe five to seven years before they were actually starting to become popular. Um, but our goal was um, that it made no sense for the patient because we would see patients at UCLA who had seen five doctors and three rheumatologists. And at the end of the day, um, 
nobody really understood what they were doing because foot and ankle is kind of a, a an area that's not as well understood by the general practitioners. Uh, and so for us, it was it was us wanting to make sure that we offered uh, state of the art care, and the patient was able to get everything done uh, in a cost efficient, appropriate manner. Uh, that's what drove the, I guess, innovation. What are, I guess, if you could talk to other disciplines, what are some of the major times that you would tell them, point them to send the patient directly to a podiatric specialist rather than uh, maybe taking a more disjointed approach to figuring out their condition and, and how to treat it? I mean, you know, the, 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 there's a few areas where I think that patients are constantly treated uh, somewhat inappropriately. Number one is uh, heel pain, right? So uh, not every single person who has heel pain has plantar fasciitis. Uh, you know, you can have a calcaneal stress fracture, you can have bursitis, you can have plantar fasciitis, you can have a nerve entrapment. And each specialty is usually used to taking care of things according to what they find most commonly. So the rheumatologist will usually think it's some form of arthritis and do an arthritis panel. The neurologist will usually think it's some form of a nerve entrapment and work that up. Um, and, and so I think like anything else, when you're doing it all day long um, you and your specialty is within, let's say, nerves or arthritis, you, you, you tend to then see so much of it that you think everything is that. Uh, with podiatrists, the problem is not every single patient who comes in your office has that has heel pain has plantar fasciitis, and that's where the 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 patient needs to be listened to and the workout needs to be appropriate. Um, so one is heel pain. The other one is we see a ton of referrals from urgent cares and even patients coming in for the ERs who have ankle sprains, and unfortunately they are undertreated also. Um, they're usually just said, oh, it's just an ankle sprain, uh, you know, ice it, it's going to be fine. And uh, that really isn't appropriate for any grade of ankle sprain. Uh, most ankle sprains need a, at least a brace, some need a boot. Uh, and if you don't take care of it appropriately, there's more chance of them having a laxity of the ankle that requires some form of surgical treatment. So those are the two biggest ones. And I didn't know that about ankle sprains, so that's actually very interesting. Um, so the practice you said over, uh, since it was founded in 2003, grew in terms of locations, in terms of services. How did you personally evolve over that time as well, um, in terms of just your own knowledge and your role within the practice? Um, I mean, when Gary and I opened in 2003, you know, when the mail would come, we'd be opening the mail because we'd want to see if we got any insurance checks. Uh, it was a, it was, it was a very different practice when we opened, and um, I don't think either of us really uh, thought that we'd be able to grow it as much as we have. Um, I think what happens personally is that you you become much more comfortable with seeing patients uh, on a larger volume. Uh, you become more comfortable with running a practice much more efficiently. Um, and I think that you also, in our case, we've kind of tried to make sure that along the way, we've incorporated all of the necessary technology, staffing, uh, and ancillary services 
so that, again, the patient care is at the highest level possible. Um, at no point, uh, which I, I kind of pride ourselves on, uh, at no point have we ever looked at the financial aspect of what's right or wrong, uh, which is probably a, a stupid mistake because that's probably a very important part of running a practice. Uh, but I've always thought if you provide really good care and you're you know, at the highest level uh, within your field, um, you're going to be doing well. And I mean, we have uh, plenty of people looking at the numbers, but uh, I don't ever look to see what pays what. I don't ever try to treat patients according to uh, financially, this is a better way of doing it than that. It's always just been uh, provide the ultimate level of care for the patient. Uh, and then uh, if you build it, they will come. That makes sense. If you're providing a high quality service, that's the most important part to any business. The financials will sort of fall in place behind that. But if you let the financials drive, then you might not always be making the best decisions for the patient or for the practice. Exactly. So, I mean, like, uh, for example, if there's two ankle braces and we can buy one for $30 and the other one is $45 and you're looking and saying, well, then I'm going to make $15 more on this brace. Uh, we really haven't done that. We've said which brace is the best brace for an ankle sprain uh, and is the most comfortable for the patient and what they're going to use. And that's the brace we'll use. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that that's actually a very good um, piece of advice for younger doctors um, don't always decide things based on financial because it, you might buy a $30 brace uh, thinking you're doing uh, uh, financially the right thing for your practice, but if the patient hates it and uh, they're not comfortable in it, then you actually make your practice look worse because they think, why is this doctor giving me something so uncomfortable? So it's very important to try to provide best practices because uh, that's what really is going to set you apart. That's that's probably a good lesson for uh, podiatrists who are maybe starting out in their career and starting their own practice, or maybe even just a good reminder for those who are further along in their careers and reassessing where they're at. Um, so you mentioned that you are actually the, so the first practice in the country to get a digital x-ray podiatry uh digital x-ray specifically for podiatry? I don't know if we were the first one in the country, but at the time that we approached the company that now is the largest digital x-ray uh, uh, manufacturer, um, I don't know if they, they for sure hadn't put one in California, and I don't know if they put more than a few in the States. Um, you know, at the time that you could get a digital x-ray, but it was like, you had to go to like the major radiograph radiologic companies and they were hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so this was like a breakthrough. Um, and, and it was interesting because when we set up our office, uh, my partner, Gary, who's, uh, about 15 years older than me was like, what do you mean? We're not going to have charts. I'm like, we're not going to have charts. I don't want a room full of charts. Uh, and then he's like, well, what do you mean we're not going to have x-rays? I'm like, why do you need x-rays? It's on the machine. And, you know, it was just everything we've always done has been, um, I think, maybe a step ahead of uh, uh, the, the general population of doctors. And 
sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's a pain in the butt and you have to figure your way through it. But again, ultimately, it allowed us to uh, grow multiple locations easier because uh, when you don't have charts uh, and your records are all on the cloud, you're able to go from location to location without having to lug stuff and patients can be seen anywhere. Um, it just made the, the growth and the flow much easier. Yeah, that was very uh, forward thinking and you had a lot of foresight doing that. So uh, University Foot and Ankle was also one of the first uh, podiatric practices in the country to get a PEDCAT weight-bearing CT system. Um, can you talk about, was it a similar conversation uh, when that came up? Uh, you know, was there some hesitancy on some parts of the partners and, and how did you convince the group? Our um, purchasing of a PetCat was similar in the sense that um, we, d- we didn't buy the PetCat sitting down and saying, okay, how many CT scans are we going to do and uh, what's our return on investment? Uh, we, we knew that uh, the PetCat pet cat was going to be a significant uh, benefit to patients and a significant benefit for us being able to take care of patients better. And we also knew that um, we're going to do enough where um, it's not like, you know, a complete loss for us. Um, But that was it. Um, The decision was made mainly because uh, we sat down as a group and said, uh, is this something that's going to benefit the patient? Number one, is it going to allow us to practice better? Number two, and does the payment of the machine compared to the payments from insurance makes sense for us. Uh, and so those three boxes got checked and then we ordered the machine. Uh, that, that's, that's something that I think is also very important. Your return on investment on whatever it is that you're going to be put into your practice doesn't always have to equal a positive. You just don't want it to be a bleeder. Um, as long as it's somewhere close to uh, uh, somewhere close to um, break even. There's a lot of intangibles that you can't necessarily put your number on, and that's an important thing to consider. Here, when we tell the story about the pet cat to to new prospective clients, and we try to explain exactly what you're saying to look beyond the numbers, can you talk about some of those? intangibles, what are the ones that have had the biggest impact? Kind of like how you said with the charts, um, one thing that you probably couldn't have measured initially was that, well, you can grow more easily um, because you're not worried about these physical records. What are some of the intangibles that you have seen with the weight-bearing CT system? So from, I think number one is that, um, you know, if, if any, any doctors think that they can continue to practice medicine without considering themselves a business that requires marketing, um, you're fooling yourself because everyone else in your community is marketing themselves. Uh, and, and any business, if you don't market yourself, you're, you're really kind of going to fall behind. Uh, from a marketing standpoint, um, the idea of having a weight-bearing CT scanner that does 3D uh, renderings of the foot and allows for proper analysis of the foot is something that sets you apart. Uh, number two is that you know a patient who comes into your office and is referred for a, a 3D scan of their foot 
um, and then is able to live see those images rotated and planed in multiple planes, uh, they understand, number one, what's wrong with their foot better. Um, they're seeing imagery that's never been seen by them before. It just takes your practice to another level. Um, more kind of detailed-wise, um, there's certain parts of practice where our, um, our, our regimen of practice has completely changed, uh, where we would do things uh, with what I consider now kind of uh, I, our, I, I'm sorry, our eyes halfway closed. Um, kind of you would be halfway blind going into a surgical procedure or a treatment and now you're um, much more aware of exactly what's happening because of the 3D CT and I think that's a really important part of uh, being able to grow your practice substantially and uh, offer best practices to patients. That sounds similar. Um, another doctor I once heard say uh, before he started using cone beam CT imaging, um, after he started using cone beam CT imaging, he realized that prior it was like he had been driving without headlights. So uh, he said that's yeah. the difference that it made for his surgical practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, th I think I think it's totally true, and it's again, it you know, within any community or within any practice, you're going to have the naysayer who says, well. You know, I can on a seat, on a regular X-ray be able to tell you what they what is there anyway. Okay, you're either a better doctor than I am, or you're fooling yourself into thinking you're a better doctor than I am. But for us, the important thing is that uh, you want to have as much information when you're taking care of the patient, so that you're offering them the absolute best um, care uh, and the least risk. So those are the two things that I think are very important. What is one indication or a couple of indications that you now consider weight-bearing CT imaging a must for? Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm going to give you one that is probably everybody's thought about, and then I'm going to give you one that probably is not as commonly thought about. So um, one that's very commonly thought about and I think is kind of a must is, uh, I think, flat foot reconstructions. Um, being able to see the structure of the foot in three dimensions and then being able to pull up um, radiographs that are, uh, you know, long leg uh, x-rays and uh, multiple planes of x-ray off of the 3D machine. It really allows you to be able to see where is the deformity? Is there a, a valgus of the heel? Is there a valgus of the ankle? Is there a valgus in, of the tibia? Is there um, elevation of the first ray? Is there a sag at the navicular cuneiform joint? And, and it allows you to kind of plan that surgery. Sometimes we actually will do two CTs. We don't care if they pay for two, they're not gonna pay for two, but we'll do a CT with the foot in its normal plane, and then we'll realign the foot into the perfect position and repeat the CT and see what the planes of correction are. So did the plane of correction seem to be more um, sagittal, coronal, and that'll help you plan um, your flat foot reconstruction so that you're actually making the right surgical decisions. So that's a fairly easy one to explain. Um, the one that has been a game changer for me, but probably is not common 
even with CT users, is hallux rigidus. So a patient comes in, and for years, uh, when we were going in to do surgery, we would look at the joint and say, well, this is a grade two, uh, there's some spurring, but the joint itself looks pretty good. So I'm going to go in and do a chylectomy. Or I would go in and say, okay, I'm going to go do a chylectomy, and I'm going to do an osteotomy to shorten the metatarsal. Uh, and what would happen is when you would go into surgery, it'd be like, oh, I didn't know there was this large defect in the middle of the joint. Or, oh, I, I didn't know there was this general arthritic condition in the joint. And so now when we are um, going in, a lot of times we will get a CT scan because it allows us to see, number one, what's going on in the midfoot? Is there a laxity at the metatarsal cuneiform joint that's allowing that metatarsal to elevate? Uh, is there a chondral defect in the metatarsal head that we need to deal with? Is the arthritic changes in the sesamoid more than what you're seeing on a radiograph? That three-dimensional imaging allows you to plan that hallux rigidus surgery much better, uh, and it allows us to go into surgery uh, with a little more confidence about, okay, this is what we're going to be doing, uh, and, and this is uh, our game plan, which then speeds up the surgery. Uh, there's less thinking during surgery that is going to be different than what your game plan is. Um, you know, it, it's like you're basically going into any sort of a sporting event, and you don't have a game plan. You, you need to have a game plan before you go in uh, you need to know the other team, you know, need to know uh, who their players are, whose skills are what, uh, you know, nobody goes in that, that way. And the CT scanner is the same. It allows us to come up with a game plan uh, and be ready for whatever we need. Uh, would you say um, that your, in general, this is very generally, that your rate of surgical revisions has gone down because of this? Uh, I think I think with hallux rigidus for sure it has because we would underestimate what we would need to do with hallux rigidus uh, and so uh, for sure there's been cases where I had planned a chylectomy and I would open up the joint and be like I can't believe there's this much this much arthritis in the joint or wow the sesamoids look a lot more arthritic than I expected. Um, and I've gone, I've really spent a lot of time looking at hallux rigidus because uh, to me, it's one of those areas where the treatment regimen within our field and within orthopedics is somewhat kind of like haphazard. Um, and I think that, you know, you under treat a lot of times and you want to be sure not to over treat because we don't want to be putting an implant in a joint that looks good. And we don't want to be fusing a joint that looks good. So it's a very technically kind of difficult area to make the right decision. Uh, and so for sure, our rate of revision um, has gone down with hallux rigidus because we are able to plan more appropriately at the time of the initial care. Uh, and, and the pet, pet cat has been very, very helpful for that. Um, in general, there's one other area where we use our pet cat pet cat very, very extensively, uh, and it's been incredibly helpful. Um, if I do a fusion on a patient, whether it's a first metatarsal phalangeal fusion, a first metatarsal cuneiform fusion, a subtalar fusion, ankle fusion, any joint, any joint, any joint, any joint, I don't care 
if insurance pays, doesn't pay, which they always pay, um, we will get a CT scan prior to allowing them to become significantly weight-bearing. And what I mean by that is uh, if I do a first MPJ fusion or a lapidus, I allow my patients to pretty much immediately weight-bear, but they're guarded. So they're 10% weight-bearing by about three weeks. They're maybe like 50 60% weight-bearing. But at that five or six week point where I'm feeling like, okay, the x-ray looks like it's pretty good uh, and I feel like they are uh, ready to go to the next step of uh, full weight bearing and going into a shoe, I get a CT scan uh, and it allows me to have, number one, the confidence to say, okay, you know what, this joint's at least partially fused and it's ready for progression to the next step or you know what, this joint's not quite ready yet. Okay, what's missing? Are you taking vitamin D? Are you, uh, you know, are you being appropriate with the amount of weight bearing? Uh, is there something missing that we need to be careful about so that they don't end up with a non-union? Um, and it's changed the way our results have come up, uh, which has been very helpful. I've heard other doctors say the current standard of care is just a standard six weeks in a boot and then it comes off. Uh, but that with the CT, we can now be so much more specific per patient. Some patients, it's healed much faster. Some patients are going to need more time than six weeks. And we should be now approaching treatment uh, or follow-up treatment that way and no longer just applying these very broad standards across the board to patients. Yeah, I, th I think that's totally true. And, you know, uh, even within my own group, when, when I started saying, you know what, we have to get a CT scan at uh, five or six weeks before we progress patients, uh, my partners were like, well, why do you need that? It's, it's fine. You know, you can see the joint is fused. And as we started to use the CT and do more of it, we've started to realize that uh, you're looking at a two-dimensional object. Uh, I'm sorry, you're looking at a three-dimensional object in two dimensions. So you don't know whether that line of fusion you're seeing is across the entire joint or is only 10% of the joint. Um, and so we've, we've definitely been able to speed up our recovery time. And I think we've avoided um, non-unions in certain patients because we've realized that they're not appropriately fused at a time where their radiographs showed them being appropriately fused. So you slow them down, you make sure that everything that is uh, necessary within their health system is appropriate, um, their protection is appropriate, and uh, our rate of non-union has become uh, I, maybe maybe one percent. I mean, one a year if we're if we're like pushing it. Uh, and I think part of that has been the pet cat. That's great. That's, that's really great to hear. Um, so kind of now going over to the workflow side of things, um, is there, are there situations where you will ever go straight, where you'll send the patient straight for a weight bearing CT exam and skip over x-ray or are you still as a rule of thumb, always doing an x-ray first? Um, I, I usually will not skip over the x-ray. Um, I think that if you're setting up an office from scratch or you're looking to buy an x-ray machine, you probably can skip the x-ray machine and buy a pet cat. So that, that caveat is important because, um, 
I think that the PetCat offers you multi-plane radiographs that are much better than your normal radiograph. Um, and you can bill for an x-ray if CT is not something you want to bill. Um, but I think from a from an insurance standpoint, uh, if you're looking to get paid for the CT scan as a first-line payment, uh, it's difficult because they ask for, have you done an x-ray uh, in a lot of the requests for the CT. Um, uh, from, a, from a care standpoint, not you know all insurance put aside. If I was at a Kaiser system, I would just use a CT because the x-rays are really kind of obsolete and um, don't make sense. Uh, but uh, from a real-life standpoint, the CT, has, I, I think, has to be uh, after you've already done a radiograph. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so talking about insurances, has your practice... Do you have um, any strategies that you use to um, get through the prior authorization process so you can get through it as quickly as possible and um, not have to have it turned over to peer-to-peer review or just have it outright denied? Um, Are there different things you've learned along the way to ensure that you're getting the prior authorizations that you need? Uh, Yeah, I think there's a few that are important. So... Uh, number one is uh, no insurance company really wants to be responsible for patient care being inappropriate. Uh, and number two is that um, they also want to take the risk of a bad outcome out of the equation as much as possible. So the two areas where we're using the PetCat pet the most are one for preoperative planning and two for postoperative um, assessments. Uh, and so for preoperative planning, uh, anytime you say that this person is having preoperative planning, uh, which is we cannot appropriately identify on a radiograph, um, the insurance company tends to be okay with it. And postoperatively, uh, in a lot of the cases we're doing, you have heavy hardware, so plates, screws, uh, and multiple uh, multiple uh, dimensions, which on a radiograph kind of uh, don't allow you to assess the joint properly. Uh, and so, postoperatively, if you're uh, if you are telling the insurance company that I can't properly assess um, the joint because of hardware, um, postoperatively, um, they tend to approve it fairly easily. Where it becomes a little bit difficult is, um, you know, we don't we don't say this person has a flat foot and we need a CT scan. We will say this person has a foot deformity and needs a CT scan for preoperative planning. So the wording of preoperative planning and postoperatively, I can't tell what's going on with the joint because of hardware, has been the two things that seem to bring success. That's that's a good tip for. Uh... Or uh, anyone else who might have extremity CT in their practice, um, and anyone who might be considering uh, getting extremity CT. Um, and then, 
You are. I wanted to touch on this a little bit because since you're the fellowship director for University Foot and Ankle, have you had any fellows come through who just see the PEDCAD and get so excited and, and want to design a research study um, around weight-bearing CT? There's There's been a lot of um, research, especially in the past couple of years, um, using weight-bearing CT imaging. So I was wondering if, if any of your students, um, if they've wanted to or have been able to incorporate that technology? So we've had a lot of interest and actually we are currently working on um, two studies. The problem is that um, it's kind of like pulling teeth getting the fellows to really do the work because they'd rather be in the OR and seeing patients at the same, which is which is more fun. Um, but the two studies we're working on is um, what does the, at what point um, at at the point that we get a CT postoperatively for lapidus and for first metatarsal phalangeal fusion, what percentage of the bone and the joint looks fused? So we're usually getting a CT um, at five to <coughs> five to six weeks, and um, we're finding that the joints are far much farther along than we expected. And so our goal is to try to assess um, how appropriately are we um, addressing the patient's weight-bearing status and moving them along uh, as compared to what their CT scans look like. Um, and I think that the results have been somewhat eye-opening because we found that they are um, much further along as far as their fusion rate as compared to what we expected. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see when that's published to see the official results. Um, so one last question to kind of close this out, and um, I kind of put this, I think this is kind of a fun question. Um, if you had a magic wand and could change one thing about healthcare or health insurance policy, what would it be? I can only change one thing. I change the whole thing. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I think that for me, one of the things that's become the most appropriate, um, what I do a lot now is we look at kind of like a global picture because we want to start to grow to, you know, 30, 40, 50 locations. And so I think of things much more on a, on a, on a larger scale of practice than seeing one patient at a time. Um, and, and realistically speaking, I think that um, what is wrong with our healthcare system is that the dollar is going into the wrong pocket. Um, if you look at, at the quality of care, um, the, the biggest issue is you have a, um, a health system where the right hand and the left hand aren't talking to each other. As in when, when electronic medical records were being made popular, um, what the U.S. government should have done instead of saying we're going to give you $50,000 to put an electronic medical record in your system was these are the three electronic medical records that you have to choose from if you want to service Medicare patients. And those three, ser those three health uh, uh, records would communicate with each other. Um, secondarily, I think that the uh, second point that's really important is um, that if you look at the amount of administration that has gone into healthcare, both in the hospital setting and in the uh, health insurance company setting, 
Um, you used to have one doctor to four administrators. Now you have one doctor to somewhere around 200 administrators. It's insane, right? So basically that, that dollar that used to go $1 to the doctor, $4 to the administrator is now going $1 to the doctor and $200 to the administrator. It just makes no sense. Um, so when, when you hear about like a plan of you know, universal health care, uh, for an efficient practice or that it's uh, functioning properly, it, uh, universal health care is actually going to be great because you're going to have less rigmarole of care. Uh, and all of us will say that uh, servicing a Medicare patient is easier than servicing a, a private care patient uh, because you, you do the care and, you know, you might get audited at the end. But uh, usually if you're doing it appropriately, there's no issues. Whereas you have to get all these pre-authorizations and approvals and jump through 10 million hoops with the private insurance companies. I think that that kind of, uh, I don't think the doctors can take any more, meaning that the, the breaking point for doctors as far as cost and efficiency and uh, quality of care, you're at a breaking point where you're paying your employees more and more money, but you're not necessarily getting paid more by the insurance company. So if they try to take more from the doctor, it's not going to work. And I think that the U.S. is going to go bankrupt if they don't change health insurance uh, systems. Um, and I think it's kind of actually exciting because um, the inefficient companies, i.e., to me, the hospital systems are going to have to change their ways. Uh, they can no longer stay inefficient when you start to get into something where there's a universal healthcare or a bundled payment system. Uh, and the efficient systems, such as doctor's offices that have uh, quality care and all of the services available are actually going to thrive because um, you're going to be able to provide care cheaper, better, faster. Uh, and that's, that's where I think the exciting part of medicine is going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we're seeing incremental changes in that direction. I'm personally most familiar with imaging policy and you're starting to see more of uh, even more of the payers embracing outpatient imaging and how that's more efficient. And I'm sure that expands to other parts of medicine as well. So hopefully we continue in that direction. Yep. We had a local CEO from a very, very big hospital group in our area. Uh, and I, I had the pleasure of meeting with him. And he made an interesting statement. So he, they're buying practices. Uh, you know, they were gobbling up practices. And I said, you know, I don't understand. Why are you buying these practices? These guys are already providing care at your health system. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're private practice guys. But um, they're, they're already, like, sending their surgeries to your health system, their MRIs to your health system. Why do you want to buy this guy? And he said, well, do you know how hospitals can... Uh, continue to stay inefficient? I said, how? He said, by buying efficient practices. <laughs> and I thought it was classic. Um, you know, but that, that, that has to stop at some point because uh, you can't continue to function as an inefficient hospital system, uh, losing money and try to make it up by buying practices. Right. That's a very good point. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. We hit on some really interesting topics and 
got some really good insights. If anyone listening, if they wanted to get in touch with you, um, what would be the best way either via social media or um, email? Um, how would you suggest people reach out to you? Uh, I, I mean, we're always available. I, I've always tried to be very open for anybody who needs to talk to us about anything. Um, uh, for us, it's not about, you know, we win and somebody else lose. For us, it's about uh, everybody winning together. Um, so number one is you can always reach me by email. And um, the, probably the easier email is B Baravarian, which is B and then another B. A-R-A-V as in Victor, A-R-I-A-N at me.com, M-E.com. Um, social media-wise, I, I think I have an Instagram account, uh, which I actually do look at. Um, otherwise, uh, social media-wise, I probably don't look at very much else. Um, and you're always welcome to call the office and someone will grab me and I'm happy to answer questions. Great. Well, thank you again uh, so much. And Hopefully we can have you again on in a future episode as well. Um, but until next time, uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much.